Welcome to the Peace Building Podcast. Join host Susan Coleman as she interviews today's most creative, courageous, and sometimes outrageous mediators, coaches, entrepreneurs, and out-of-the-box thinkers whose work, whether intended or not, is building peace. Tune in for 45 minutes of pure inspiration as we explore the best stories, the best practices, the best ideas of a new world emerging. Here's your host, global consultant, coach, facilitator, and mediator, Susan Coleman. Hi, Gay. Hi, Susan. I'm so glad you joined me. I'm just super excited to have you be a guest on this show because you are just, you have an incredible amount of experience and background to share. And uh, so thank you for joining us on the Peace Building Podcast. Really, really excited to have you here. Well, thank you for asking me. It's exciting. Yeah, yeah. So I have with me right now Gay Rosenblum Kumar, uh, who I'm going to read her short bio because it, it is it is pretty impactful and says a lot. And, um, and it's short, so it's worth reading. And um, so Gay is a conflict transformation specialist with 30 years experience in the United Nations and with NGOs, which is non-governmental organizations. She has formulated numerous country-based conflict transformation programs and co-founded the UN's first cadre of peace and development conflict transformation advisors. Gay has been involved in conflict analysis and response development, capacity building for mediation and dialogue, electoral violence prevention, and conflict sensitivity policy and practice. Currently, she is a consultant senior advisor to the Department of Foreign Affairs, the Swiss Department of Foreign Affairs uh, Task Force on Dealing with the Past and Prevention of Atrocities, a senior advisor to Nonviolent Peace Force, an adjunct professor at NYU teaching peace building and development, and continues to consult with the UN and other entities. She is on the board of the New York Peace Institute and the Free Yazidi Foundation. Gay has an MA from the School for International Training. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, so um, I, uh, I had, I don't know, is there anything that you want to add to that uh, amazing bio? No, in fact, he, I've never heard anyone read it to me. Uh, so it, um, I've done a lot of things, uh, but I'm not sure if that's really who I am. That's just what I've done. So hopefully we'll get to cover that and also other things that are important. Yeah, I wanted to say, too, um, that, um, you know, it always strikes me whenever I get an email from you, it's on the bottom of your email. There's, there's two quotes that are really very powerful quotes. Can I, can I read those, too? Sure. Um, one of them is, um, is Rumi, and it uh, just says, um, try not to resist the changes that come your way. Instead, let life live through you, and do not worry that your life is turning upside down. How do you know that the side that you're used to is better than the one to come? Rumi. And then the other one you've had forever, I think, on there. I think you added Rumi more recently. Is that right? Yes, you're exactly right. Yeah. The other one that you've had on there forever, which I love this one, is... um, is uh, doc, uh, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that, Dr. Martin Luther King. 
always almost chokes me up. That's such a beautiful quote. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, any comments about the fact that you have those two quotes on there? Uh, yes, maybe that would be a good place to start, actually. Because obviously I'm, uh, I've had a long career now and I don't have to worry about what people think of me. They already think what they think. Uh, but this uh, kind of shows something that I have always felt, to not hide your true feelings and your true beliefs and not be worried about how others may interpret them or think less of you. Um, some people might think those quotes are a bit, uh, the roomy one more than Dr. King, a little bit um, out of the norm or something that shouldn't be put on an official email. Uh, but I've always tried to stretch the envelope, as they say. Uh, and that's one way of making people kind of sit back and say, hmm, that's unusual, but what does that mean? And hopefully it hits them in a way that goes beyond just their head and gets to their heart as well. Beautiful. So, you know, you've been inside the UN system for how many years was that? Just over 25. 25, it's a long haul. Yeah. And so you have a big perspective on the UN. You, were you with UNDP that whole time, the United Nations Development Program? No, I was actually mostly with the Secretariat. Okay. And, and, uh, and then you moved to UNDP? In the last uh, five or seven years. Yeah, yeah, okay. And, and so you have some perspective on the term peace building and how it's shown up or evolved inside the UN system, mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking. Can you say, any, I think the listeners would probably find that really interesting for you to say something about that. Okay. Um, maybe I should... Before I go directly to peace building, because I was kind of working at the UN before that term and field had a name, uh, even though people were doing various parts of it, I just want to tell you a little bit about how I got into the field. Is that okay? I would love to hear that, and I think everybody would love to hear that. Yeah, and how you got into the field, and also how you got into the UN and international affairs, maybe, too. Oh, okay, that goes and back And maybe, Gay, maybe, Gay, actually, I think it's pretty interesting to hear if you could say something too personal about what planted seeds in you that got you connected to even wanting to do that kind of work. Okay, now we're going back really far, but okay, I know. I know. You're, gonna, you're gonna get the whole thing. Okay, cool. Well, that sounds wonderful. Okay. Uh, I grew up on Long Island uh, in a suburban commuter community about 40 minutes from Manhattan and went to school in a very homogeneous neighborhood. Uh, but in the fourth grade, we took a trip to the UN. <laughs> and it seriously changed my life. As these things go. Yeah. You know? Amazing. So we were going around looking at uh, exotic statues on the wall, but then we went to sit in one big conference room in the back where they have the audience uh, for the public. And down on the floor, in the center of the room, were ladies in saris and men in robes and people with the most exotic colors and faces I had ever seen. And it opened up a world for me. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that exist, mm -hmm. existed. And I just, kind of a light bulb went off and said, wow, I want to find out more and I want to do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now that kind of buried itself in my head. I grew up, 
I went to college. My dad was a lawyer. He really wanted me to go to law school. I figured I would. But I unfortunately, or fortunately, I worked for him one summer in the law school. And that did in it. In his office. <laughs> and I completely decided that was not for me. Yeah, yeah. So smart move. <laughs> Being somebody who went that direction, I could say smart move. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then I graduated from college with a degree in social science, had never really worked and had no clue how to get a job. But this was back in 1977 before the Internet. And uh, I just had to make my way. So I took the train from my parents' home on Long Island into Penn Station, which at that time had a small room with phone books from all over the country. <laughs> this is that antiquated. Uh, and I would look in the Manhattan phone book and I spoke some Spanish. So I would look under S for Spanish this or that or L for Latin America or I for international. And I would plot a walking course to go through Manhattan and knock on doors. Wow. And wow. if listeners, this is very, and how old are you at this point? I was 22. This is very enterprising. Uh, maybe I'll tell you later how that my daughter just got her summer internship in the same way. But, um, I literally knocked on doors of everything from private companies to book publishers to small museums and cultural centers. And some people got angry and said, you're wasting my time. But <laughs> others were so impressed or intrigued that this foolish person would come knock on their door. They actually talked to me. Uh -huh. And very often they would say, well, I don't have anything, but, you know, I have a friend over there. Right. Go see him or her. Right. And I did this for a couple of weeks. It helped me tremendously with being able to speak to the public and to uh, verify a belief that I had held that it can't hurt to ask. Yeah. It can't hurt to try. Right. The worst thing that happens is people say no. Right. And I've employed that in my life and <laughs> the envelope in a lot of ways. It's <laughs> a good thing. It's a very good thing. So eventually my walking path took me in front of the United and Nations. And I might say it's a little bit odd for women because lots of times women won't even ask. And yeah. so good for you. Yeah, and that's kind of my point to mm -hmm. people who might be at that stage in their life. Mm -hmm. It can't hurt to ask. Yeah. I mean, you might get a little embarrassed, mm -hmm. but that's the worst thing that could happen. Mm -hmm. So I walked past the United Nations. They had guards there. I didn't know how to get in. But across the street from the UN is a building called One UN Plaza, which still has the recruitment office for uh, the general service, which are people who don't have professional degrees and are wanting to work in administrative positions. So I went in there and sat down and talked with a woman who said, and this is almost a direct quote, you either have to have a PhD or type 80 words a minute. <laughs> and I looked at her very discouraged. You mean this was to work in the UN in general or to work at the general service level? No, to work in the UN in general. In general. Okay, Either yeah, you yeah. needed a PhD yeah, right. to be a professional or you needed a fast typing speed. Right, right, right. And I kind of thought to myself, it'll probably be easier for me to get a PhD. <laughs> and I walked out of there very dejectedly. And I walked north to the corner of 47th and 1st Avenue, where there were beautiful big picture windows with African art. And I had never really thought much about Africa because of my Spanish. I was aiming for Latin America. But I walked in because it was a hot day. I figured it would be air conditioned and I'd look at the art. And as I walked into the lobby, uh, I noticed that the art continued around another part of the office past some offices. And as I walked up there, I heard someone being interviewed for a job. Mm -hmm. So I walked back to the front desk and asked the lovely receptionist, are there any jobs here for entry level people? And she said, do you speak French? I said, no. She said, there's something in the back 
that deals with South Africa. You don't need French. Just walk back there and talk to Charlotte. Of course, these are the days before terrorism and they let anyone in. There was no protocol. So I walked to the back and talked to a woman named Charlotte who ran a scholarship program for disadvantaged refugees from South Africa. And she did an interview on the spot. Wow. And fortunately for me, I had studied in Denmark for a semester. And as you may remember, the Scandinavian countries were very big supporters of the liberation struggle in yeah. Southern Africa. Yeah. So even in the 70s, I knew Nelson Mandela, the ANC, the PAC, SWAPO from Namibia, etc. And the simple fact that I knew these things somehow impressed her. Yeah. I guess because most Americans didn't. Yeah. And she gave me my first job. Wow. So it was literally from knocking on doors and walking in and asking. Wow. And I stayed there almost a dozen years. I grew up there. I traveled to Africa. So actually months. there being, what was the name of the organization? Sorry, sorry. It was called the African American Institute. Okay. A, a small NGO that still exists. Okay. And uh, I really cut my teeth on everything from how to write a business letter to how to talk to people uh, across cultures uh, to we had some affiliation with the UN, how the UN worked. Um, and I often recommend to people that it would be much better to start at an NGO, a small NGO where you feel you can have impact and you can see things at many levels rather than necessarily going into a huge organization like the UN where you'll be just a cog in a wheel. Right, right. Uh, did, you, did you travel to Africa at all in that job? Many, many times. Wow. All over Africa or? or um, yes. Wow. Uh, we had South African, Namibian and Zimbabwean students at that time, Rhodesian students in about 25 countries around the continent. And over the course of 11 years, I visited all of them. Incredible. And uh, we also Exciting. had many people in the U.S., so I also got to travel in the U.S. quite a lot and mm -hmm. see places like Nebraska and Kansas <laughs> and North Dakota, which was an education, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was a fabulous, I really feel like I grew up there. Yeah, fabulous, yeah. Uh, and so, and, but you were also going in, you were having some interface with the U.N. Uh, in that role yes. with, with the African-American. And when you say African-American, it wasn't like the way we talk about African-Americans in the United States. It was Africa it was uh, yeah, actually yeah. you're very, very astute. They have since changed the name of the organization to the Africa America Institute. Yeah. Precisely so, so that it would not be confused now that the term African American has a different meaning. Right, right, yeah. right, right. So anyway, to, to jump from there, I took a leave of absence when I was there and did a master's degree uh, at the School for International Training, which... Is that in Vermont? Yes, yeah. Brattleboro. And Brattleboro, that, yeah. That really unique program taught me process skills mm -hmm. more than like history or politics, uh, but skills in facilitation, cross-cultural dialogue, mm -hmm. uh, adult learning methods. And that really was the key for the rest of my career. So how so? Just because um, you found that they were really applicable to everything else that you were doing? Yes. And when I joined the UN and, UN and unfortunately saw a real dearth of skills, yeah. I was able to use those skills to introduce some new facilitation methods and um, meeting process methods that I think helped make my work have a lot more impact. Yeah, I remember you. I mean, because we first met at Teachers College at Columbia, right? That was our first connection, I believe. 
Exactly. When, when we were delivering, uh, I was delivering those programs in collaborative negotiation and mediation skills, and then, and you were clearly, you just, you clearly stood out as somebody who knew what the heck you were doing uh, on a well, lot of fronts. Fortunately, I had had that background, in, and uh, then I spent about 15 years doing anti-apartheid work in various ways. I actually joined the UN to run their program after uh, the one at the African American Institute. Mm -hmm. And then I had a unique privilege to join the UN's mission to South Africa in 1992. It was very small, 50 people for a whole country, uh, but to be peace observers. And uh, this is what I wanted to share with you about that. Yeah. So a, a, I, I did, as uh, I'll just say for the listeners, I had asked you to think about a piece of work or, or two um, that you had been involved in that you think would be interesting to folks. Um, and uh, that, that would, I, I don't know if you called it peace building at that time. What, what did you call it? Uh, probably conflict prevention, mm -hmm. which is also an antiquated term and not very accurate, but that's the one we had at the time. Why, uh, why antiquated, do you think? Well, uh, there's many people who have written on this better than I will say it, but just the term conflict prevention sounds like you mean to prevent conflict. Mm -hmm. But if we are realistic... We can't prevent conflict. Conflict is part of life mm -hmm. every day mm -hmm. uh, with your spouse, with your child, with your boss, between countries. So it's not really about preventing conflict because then you might be um, like pressing it down right. and denying it with, and then it will only explode. Right. So uh, that's not really what we ever meant. What we really mean is violence prevention uh, so that conflicts can be solved constructively and without destructive either physical violence or violence of the spirit or uh, suppressing freedom of speech, etc. cetera. Uh, but the, the terms of art have really grown in that sense to where uh, then some people started using conflict resolution, which to my mind, and sorry, Susan, you probably have a better definition, but it really means resolving the specific dispute in front of us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Two people disagree on uh, a boundary between their land or two governments disagree on a boundary between their land and we want to resolve that. Right. And usually we bring in outside mediators and they will help us through a process. Uh, but in my case, the work I've been doing goes is with people who have a history of disputes and disagreement and usually fear and mistrust and sometimes hatred. Right. So it's not about that particular dispute that's arising today, but a much deeper and longer dispute. And so solving one problem is not enough. Then some people in the UN too use the term conflict management. That kind of meant getting in the middle <laughs> and managing. It could be peacekeepers who are managing to keep disputants from fighting. But it also means... It does sort of has this feeling of kind of somehow trying to control things that are not really lending themselves to being controlled. Yes, yes. And then in the 90s, uh, people like John Paul Lederach and others introduced the term conflict transformation. Mm -hmm. And a transformational approach really recognized that conflict is normal and continuous within human relationships and is fluid and ebbs and flows. And that what is really needed is a process that allows people to deeply understand what's going on with them and their opponent or antagonist, but mostly with them. And to envision conflict as a positive opportunity 
for transformative growth on all parts. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't want to sound Pollyanna and think, oh, that means we just make nice. Not at mm -hmm. all. It mm -hmm. really means very deep and sometimes painful work. But also, you have to have a willingness to maximize the potential. Mm -hmm. And in other ways, it also is the opposite of what the UN and the world have been doing in conflict prevention, which historically was very reactive, means, uh-oh, things have just exploded, we need to address them. Mm -hmm. And rather, it becomes proactive, where you can deal on this with these kind of issues before they explode, right. and in fact, usually have more success. Mm -hmm. So much earlier on in the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And secondly, in the UN, conflict prevention has often meant high level. We send in a former president or a mediator or a trusted, respected person, which is important. But very often, it also disempowers the people who are party to the conflict. And kind I always of call this the impression... Um... Yeah, I always yeah. call this the famous person model. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, because it makes people think you don't have the power to solve it yourself. You mm -hmm. need someone outside. Mm -hmm. And quite honestly, often that person is a global northerner and a male, mm -hmm. historically. Mm -hmm. So this is shifting the ground and saying, you know, perhaps a facilitator can lead you through a process to help you through the issue. That person should be from as close to the culture as possible. Uh, but even if they're from outside, this is really something you have to solve. And uh, there's a famous line, I think it's famous, in the 2001 Secretary General's report on the prevention of armed conflict, which was the first report of that title, which says, the responsibility for preventing conflict rests with member states and their civil society. And the role of the UN is to help impart skills that will help them do this. So it's really very much in a service role and yeah. not a leading role. Yeah. And I think that's part of conflict transformation. And the yeah. last thing I'll say about that really is... Really a shift. Really yes, a shift. Yeah. Yes. And conflict transformation is not just about shifting the terms of this dispute, but about shifting and transforming the relationship between the disputants, about how they see each other and how they trust each other. Mm -hmm. And so that uh, goes far beyond before, during, and after the dispute. And I think really has the key for what some people are now doing in the world to solve disputes and will be the key to sustainable peace mm -hmm. in the long term. Mm -hmm. You speak about this very eloquently and um, yeah, with such deep knowledge. Uh, you started to talk about um, South Africa and what actually happened there. Do, do you want yeah. to, is this a good time to tell that story? Yeah, because I think it's kind of neat. Mm -hmm. um, so about 30 or 40 people arrived in November of 1992 and 10 of us or so were sent to Durban, which is the third largest city. And our boss, who was a wonderful guy, uh, his first job was looking for an office space. And it needs to be somewhat prestigious because the first time the UN is in the country, but he picked the top floor of the tallest building in the city, which one could say is prestigious, but also was very symbolic of how mm -hmm. out of touch we were mm -hmm. with the whole situation. <laughs> and I had obviously, I had done a lot of anti-apartheid work. I was thrilled to be there. I thought I knew something about the situation. But the other people who were on the mission were chosen seemingly rather randomly. I mean, we had a French to Chinese translator mm -hmm. and a statistician and not people with really deep knowledge mm -hmm. about the country and the subject, let alone... Right what we should do as peace observers. Right. So on about the third day, 
we heard lots of noise coming from the street. We were on the main drag in town. And we looked out the window down 30 stories and saw a bunch of people on one side of the street. And on the other side, police with trucks that were water cannons. Mm -hmm. So we put on our blue caps and we put on our blue jackets and we took the long elevator. And, right and the blue caps and the blue jackets, what, what did those well, signify? The UN blue. Okay. UN blue with the UN logo. Yeah, okay. And we got out on the street, and from the right, it was a group of university students, hundreds, I would say, and the roar, yay, the UN was here. And on the other side were police, and we kind of looked at each other. What the <laughs> hell are we supposed to do now? <laughs> and by the grace of the higher power, walking toward us was a short, kind of stout man, and he introduced himself. Hello, I'm Vasu Goundin. I'm the director of the African Center for the Constructive Resolution of Disputes. <laughs> the acronym is ACCORD, in case you don't know it. And he said, can I help you? And we said, oh, yes, of course, we're only here to observe. And I remember like how grateful I was and how nervous. And I accompanied him to shuttle diplomacy. He literally did across the avenue. Yeah. He went to the students, what are your concerns? And they started out very rambunctiously. In fact, recently, South Africa's just had similar protests about raises in tuition fees and lessening of bursaries, which are scholarships there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's what they said. And they wanted to present a petition to someone. Hey, you know, Gay, I actually think it might be useful for you just to set the stage to 1992. What was the, what was the context uh, that was happening in South Africa okay, at that time? Thank you. Uh, Nelson Mandela had recently been released, and there were negotiations between the ANC and the government uh, on a hoped-for elections and a process toward independence, which meant uh, a draft constitution, a real constitution, and uh Truth and Reconciliation Commission, etc. So it was a very exciting time to be there. Yeah. And uh, then we walked across, back across to the police, and they said, these students have to get out of the street. They're blocking traffic. We can't have this. You know, their positions, clearly. Yeah. Yeah. And we went back and forth, back and forth. In, in the term of negotiation positions. Yes. Yeah. And he, uh, he mediated it, and he got both sides to agree to a place and a time where the students could present uh, their petition to people from the university with the government there. And it was like magic to me. Yeah. Now, I had never thought that anything would grab me like the justice issues involved in the anti-apartheid movement. Mm -hmm. And I slowly, over my two years there, accompanying what the South Africans had set up called the National Peace Accord Process, which had mediated groups working at national level on the big issues I just mentioned, regional level, and at local level in small townships and rural areas, using facilitated dialogue to solve disputes and problems at all those levels. That's how I got into this work of peace building, yeah. because I saw it live. Mm -hmm. I saw its failures and, you, and its mm -hmm. successes. Yeah. So, um, so anything, so what is, so... But you, and I'm still sort of with you in that moment of with your blue helmet on and your blue jacket, you know, going back. So it was a whole group of you going back and forth watching the Accord guy yes. do his thing. Okay, yeah. so we then asked Vasu from Accord to yeah. please give us some training. And they gave the UN and the EU observers a week's worth of training uh -huh. in 
peace observation, how to facilitate dialogue, yeah. a little bit of mediation. And it really set the course for our work there and I think greatly improved it, at least the people who were in Durban. Uh -huh. Then I came back to New York after the election of Mandela in 94. And I had not been with the UN that many years up until that point, and two of them had been spent away. So I was sure there were people in the UN who knew this work and were doing it. And again, I used my knock-on-doors techniques. <laughs> we now are going to we'll call it the Gay Rosenblum Kumar <laughs> technique. Or maybe it was just Gay Rosenblum at that point, right? Uh, no, it was all it, of it. It was all of it. Yes. Okay. Um, but I couldn't find it. And people looked at me when I talked about things like local peace committees. Not only like I was speaking a foreign language, but that I was speaking Martian. I mean, it was so far from anyone's consciousness that I was really getting disturbed until I found a few co-conspirators, as we called each other. Mm -hmm. And these are people who had actually been to school to study conflict transformation and peace building. When I had been in grad school, the field really didn't exist as an academic subject. And a few other people who had had life experience I think I really noticed this myself, you know, with the work that I did I, you know, so many years with the UN of, you know, people were content uh, specialists, they, yes. they, but they weren't necessarily, there were not so many process people. Um, yes. It wasn't, you know, they were, they were economists, they were lawyers, they were statisticians, they, you know, mm -hmm. um, lots mm -hmm. of things like that, mm -hmm. but not people that necessarily really understood process, yes. which yes. is so key. And so... I tried in a lot of different ways, and I don't know how many details to give, but you can cut it out if it's not relevant. Uh, first, I tried on the higher, what they call the normative level, like to convene, even though I was a small fry, I had got other people involved, to convene meetings where we could talk about these things and how to... Is this, are you giving us now, like, because you have in your bio that you co-founded the UN's first cadre of peace and development conflict transformation advisors. It sounds like this is the yes. beginning of that. Yes, exactly. Okay. Very cool. Uh, so, but first I started thinking we should all talk about this. And it was at the time of the Ted Turner, $1 billion, mm -hmm. $3 million a year startup. And I got in touch with them and they were interested in funding a very deep multidisciplinary dialogue. And then I approached the Department of Political Affairs because they were the preeminent department in this and... Okay, I don't work for the UN anymore, so I can say these things without <laughs> mentioning names. Um, the two people I met with, right at the heart of this subject, looked aghast. But you can't talk about this. You know, you come from a governance unit here. This is our work. I said, well, then you lead it. I'll just help with it. But they said, this is premature. A very popular word at the UN, premature means we're cutting this off at the neck for now. <laughs> and uh, they did. Mm -hmm. They cut it off completely. My boss told me, you are not allowed to talk to DPA anymore. Get back to your other work. Mm -hmm. uh, but other people... Sorry, you and, and you were with which part, which part of the UN at that point? I was with what is now DESA, the Department of Economic and Social Affairs, okay. in a public administration and governance unit. Okay. Uh, but mentors that I had, and I really strongly believe in mentors and try to do it myself as much as I can. Uh, one mentor told me, it's easier to get forgiveness than get permission. Just do it. <laughs> I love that line. Yeah. I use it often. Yes. Yeah. And I did. So then, okay, I wasn't supposed to go talk to the Department of Political Affairs. Instead, I went, went to talk to the UN Development Program, mm -hmm. which was another very powerful department who did work on the ground. And I found a few believers there. Which is UNDP. Right, UNDP. Yeah. And I got a grant first to develop some 
guidance material and training material on things like how to do a conflict analysis. Now, now this seems de rigueur and everyone's doing it, but back then it was fairly new. Mm -hmm. And so what it would mean to do not just a conflict analysis where one person sits in a room or reads all the newspapers, but an inclusive conflict analysis where you go to a country and you work with the nationals from across the political spectrum, from the elites to the common people, and you so bring them together. Actually, doing a stakeholder, you're, you're engaging stakeholder, the stakeholders yes, exactly. and finding out, you know, basically getting their input into the whole situation rather than doing some kind of top down expert view. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So we did one on that. We did another guidance note on and training on uh, conflict resolution skills that were for UN staff, but also for our national counterparts. Uh, we did another one on governance and conflict. And so looking at how things like corruption and misappropriation and poor elections uh, lead to conflict. Uh, and then we did a fourth one. on conflict-sensitive development. And all of these uh, got out in the UN system, got people interested, we did trainings, we trained other people to use the trainings and got very good feedback. And then interest started to come in from UN. And, and Sarah Gay, what year are yeah. we now at this point? With, when's this happening? Uh, probably about 2001, 2002. Okay. okay. It took a couple of years to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, requests started to come from country offices saying, okay, can you come do a conflict analysis? Can you come help us make our planning documents conflict sensitive? And again, we did not want the model of top down, send an expert to do this for you, but we would facilitate discussions and trainings where country offices could learn to do this for themselves. Mm -hmm. And then the realization dawned that people flying in and out are much less than ideal. So why don't we develop the kind of staff person who could go to countries with these kind of needs and accompany processes over time. Wait, people going in and out, you mean from New York or right, just right. because it's uh, better to have it local? Yes, because you can't really, first of all, I'm a believer that an outsider can never really fully understand a conflict. Mm -hmm. Only the people who have grown up in it mm -hmm. and know it viscerally can. Mm -hmm. But at least an outsider needs to breathe the air, read the papers, talk to people, even drink the water to really understand what's happening. And that takes time. Well, and then I could push back on that, too, in the sense that sometimes, uh, I, I mean, you know, in my consulting business, we always have a joke, don't do anything 100 miles from home. You know, I mean, there is something about mm -hmm. being, being, being able to be on the boundary of something and not, yes. not being as emotionally engaged. And, yes. um, and that is true. And for that reason, and also just because of UN policy, uh, the cadre of peace and development advisors can never be someone from that country. Mm -hmm. uh, not because their um, impartiality, that I would doubt their personal credibility or integrity, but because others might not be able to feel that they didn't have a horse in the race. Yeah. And so they're always chosen from a neighboring country or the same continent or sometimes from a different continent. Mm -hmm. So yes, you do have a point there. But um, we started to get requests and conceive of and develop this cadre one country at a time. And I juxtapose that to what I said earlier about trying to do high-level conferences in New York because we realized that making policy or changing policy was well beyond our pay grade. And rather, we were going to make facts on the ground 
and hoped they got noticed in other places. And it actually did work. And this uh, intervention or group of staff specialists were deployed not in overtly conflictual countries, not in the country where peacekeepers were already uh, trying to stop violence. But really, and what you mean by peacekeepers? Those are the military peacekeepers that exactly. the UN facil- facilitates the, those operations. Yeah. Yes. And so instead we worked only upon request, by the way. This cannot be done in a country that's not willing. Uh, in countries that admitted they had tensions that they were willing to work on with us. And by the way, one thing that came out of that SG's report that I quoted before about mm-hmm. the responsibility rests with the two thousand states. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a divide in the UN about whether conflict prevention is too interventionist or not and uh, could impede or affect the sovereignty of nations. Mm-hmm. And I can understand that point of view. But the point of this kind of very early long-term intervention is not only does it not attack or interfere with sovereignty, my belief is that it helps countries strengthen their governance and their social cohesion and goodwill and avoid outbreaks of violence that could actually uh, threaten sovereignty. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the countries that were willing, and I really give them credit for starting this, were countries like Ghana in West Africa, Guyana in South America, Guinea-Bissau, also West Africa, uh, Bangladesh, Kenya, uh, and this was somewhat before their post-election violence in 2007-2008, Lesotho, Cyprus, which as you know has a well-known divide, Mm -hmm. Uh, Nigeria, Georgia, countries all over the world. Um, And each program was tailor-made and each person was identified through a rigorous selection process to have the right set of skills and the right uh, continent or situational Understanding, and what did you call? You call? Did you call them PDAs? Was that wasn't that the yeah? Di- that's yeah. the acronym, which stands for Peace and Development Advisor, uh-huh. which is supposed to imply that they have one foot in the development world and one foot in the more political analysis, peace building world, and they understand how to do both. Yeah, a real evolution for the United Nations in so many respects. A really wonderful innovation. I would say so. And Mm -hmm. I'm glad that even though I'm not working with it anymore, I'm very glad to see it growing. I believe there's 35 now uh, PDAs around the world and things that we had started to do as we evolved and learned they were needed, like have annual or biannual uh, retreats where everyone gets together and shares because they're very isolated and sometimes wow. feel yes, like no it, one understands them. Yeah. So they know each other and they can call on each other for help. Mm-hmm. Those are happening. There's uh, an induction program several times a year where new folks are brought to New York to meet counterparts and each other. And most of these people actually come from outside the UN system. So they even need kind of an intro to how the UN works. I didn't realize actually that it was so alive and well. I actually had an impression that things, it had sort of subsided, but this is fabulous what you're saying. It sounds like it's got a lot of life in it. Yeah. I mean, some things have subsided and there Mm -hmm. are some bumps. Uh, The UN's going through some tough times, Uh, but basically it continues. And in some of the major reports that came out this year, like the high-level panel report on peace operations and the uh, review of the peace-building architecture, both of them say 
in no uncertain terms and specifically the peace and development cadre should be fully funded Wow. Like from regular sources, which it's not. It's always been externally raised funds, mm-hmm. and it should continue to grow because it helps us. Wow, Gay, okay. you ought yeah. to be really, really super proud of this. You know, it's it's a real legacy. Yeah. Well, it wasn't only me. There were a lot of people involved, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. a lot of people at higher level who were willing to uh, take some chances. Mm-hmm. And as you know, the UN's a pretty risk averse organization, so mm-hmm. I really credit a lot of people with having mm-hmm. a start. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I realize as we're talking, it would be great. Do you, do you mind drilling down just a little bit and saying, practically speaking, um, what is it that the PDAs uh, do or have done? Could you give a couple of examples? I think the listeners would really appreciate um, something that is a, is a little bit more filled out. Sure. Uh, I'd be happy to. I can think of a couple uh, that are a little bit different from each other, which might give good examples. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, one of the first places that this work was done by the UN was in Ghana, uh, where there had been a chieftaincy rotation dispute between two ethnic groups, meaning that the chief, when he, and it was always a he <laughs> then, uh, died, the next chief would come from the opposite ethnic group and they would revol- uh, rotate. Uh, But it happened that one chief came in and unfortunately died after like four years and that group felt they didn't get their full term and thought they should be repeated and the other said, no, the rule's the rule. However long you have it, you have to go. In any case, uh, it started uh, a rather tense uh, rivalry between the two ethnic groups that also mirrored the political divisions in the country between the two main political parties. So interesting, yeah. Yeah, which often happens. Yeah, yeah, so interesting. And then, of course, it got ramped up and one got support from the government and one got support from the opposition until it actually uh, evolved into more than a day-long firefight at the palace of the, the chief Wow. Uh, where he, or the person who had been installed was killed uh, and beheaded. And, and then there was like no clarity on who was to rotate in next time. Uh, and the government was at a loss in some respects, Probably even though a it's, lot it's of tension quite, and a lot of yes. bad feelings at this and, point. And because yeah. they were implicated in being partisan, they really realized that they couldn't do this alone. Mm-hmm. So the UN sent in uh, a person as a peace and development advisor. He happened to be from Nigeria, which is a few countries over. Right. So kind of close enough to understand the culture, but far enough not to be accused of being biased. And he did a lot of diplomatic work back and forth between the true tribes. What are your issues? And of course you get into the typical, what are your positions? People mm-hmm. only have their positions first. Mm-hmm. And eventually he realized that he couldn't bring them together to talk with each other until they had more skills and better skills on how to do a negotiation. So it started, uh, and he worked with local NGOs. He didn't do it alone in bringing groups of people, and these people did not speak English, and many were older people who were not uh, literate in terms of writing, uh, but together for training where they could discover that they could do mediation if they understood basic principles, or rather negotiation. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they were equipped and confident 
to handle this and also then had more trust in uh, the authorities who were organizing this. They brought in a very powerful Ghanaian, um, uh, his name is, the Ashantehene, mm-hmm. who was the king of the Ashantes, mm-hmm. who was also a neighboring tribe or ethnic group that has a lot of respect. And he was the overseer of the whole process. So they really had the gravitas to do this. They actually worked out a plan that would take some years, but to move forward, settle the rotation dispute, settle who should come in next, settle things like the burial and the funeral, which are two different things Mm -hmm. in that culture, Mm -hmm. uh, of the chief who was beheaded and the one before him, which hadn't been done because of this conflict. And over the course of a few years, de-escalated the conflict so that the two communities would stop fighting. Yeah, beautiful. Because they kept being retaliatory, retaliatory mm-hmm. attacks. Mm-hmm. Last thing I'll say on that one is the, the regional governor saw this and was so impressed he brought it to the attention of the national government, which set up regional bodies called peace committees and then a national peace council yeah. that exists to this wow. day and has been extremely influential in guiding uh, peace efforts during national elections, which have on occasion gotten violent, and really doing a lot of pre-election work uh, to keep the peace between groups, to have election dispute monitors and systems set up, and really inculcate a whole structure of dispute resolution through the yeah, country. So it really rippled. Incredible. Yes. Yeah, incredible story. Okay, uh, I'll try to be shorter in one or two. No, no it's like excellent. Yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, um, yeah, another, another one would be great. Okay, uh, let me take Guyana in South America, uh, the only English-speaking country in South America, which was settled several hundred years ago by um, the British and then uh, people of Indian descent who were called Indo-Guyanese. Mm-hmm. They came mainly as indentured workers uh, on sugar plantations and then Afro-Guyanese who were slaves who were brought over from West Africa. Uh, it's gone back and forth, but right now it's about 55% Indo-Guyanese, I think about 42 or 43% Afro-Guyanese, and then there are some Europeans, some Chinese, some Brazilians, and others in the mix. In any case, back in maybe around uh, the early 2000s, government was really paralyzed because this ethnicity, the division was so close percentage-wise that uh, elections were leaving the government without a majority to rule well enough. And um, things started to break down because the political parties, in order to get more votes, were really playing the ethnic card. Uh, And before elections going on the airwaves, TV and radio, Uh, exacerbating the conflict and saying, watch out for that other party. Mm -hmm. They're going to kill you. They're not going to represent your interests. And uh, the whole system really broke down and elections had been very violent up until Mm -hmm. that time. Mm -hmm. Again, because of some kind of a quirk, uh, Guyana is the home of um, the regional organization for the Caribbean, CARICOM. And it just so happened that there was a CARICOM regional meeting And the opposition decided to uh, hold a boycott right outside of CARICOM in order to embarrass the government and give bad publicity. And it turned out to be violent. And then uh, they really realized that they needed some help. So again, UN was able to deploy a peace and development advisor 
who started to work with all the interested parties. There was a private sector initiative that was trying to bring harmony together uh, that took the lead on this because the UN doesn't take the lead. It really tries to empower others. And, and where was the UN person from? He was South African. Okay. Um, good question. Again, um, we try to bring in someone who was impartial. Mm-hmm. Um, in that case, interestingly, he was a white South African who had been very involved in the peace struggle and the anti-apartheid struggle and mm-hmm. part of the National Peace Accord process. But when he was one of the candidates selected, I remember distinctly thinking, uh-oh, will people be uncomfortable or even opposed to a white South African, yeah. visions of apartheid, etc. And I remember a Guyanese person laughing and saying, no, actually white is a neutral color here. <laughs> Yeah. So he got along very well. That's and uh, some of the things he did were related to an upcoming election. He also created peace teams. He trained eminent people, religious leaders from Hindu, Muslim, and Christian groups, uh, school principals and teachers, other respected um, NGO leaders, and uh on how to go back to their own communities and explain the issues and look for viable alternatives to solving conflicts other than violence, uh, created, ultimately this resulted in what they called a national conversation. It was a national dialogue process where dialogue facilitators were trained. It's it's a small country, it's less than a million people, so this was actually doable for every community. Wow. And uh, they used a standard template and they brought people together from across the political and ethnic spectrum and led them through a dialogue process, a visioning process for where do you want, where do you see Guyana going in 15 or 20 years? Uh, What are your needs uh, of your community? And of course, as as people who have done this, you, Susan, would know, um, their needs were quite similar. Everyone wants. Always a surprise to people. Yes, but Mm -hmm. we're all humans. We need security. Mm -hmm. We need education for our kids, Mm -hmm. food, shelter, um, voice, being heard, feeling like you're included. Uh, And that led to a lot of good cooperation in local communities, but also reports that are actually still online. If if anyone Googles Ethnic Relations Commission, Guyana, National Conversation, these were done at the national level. Those were fed into regional conversations that were then held with representatives of each local community and ultimately a national conversation. Wow, so excellent. Really yeah. amazing. How did this guy, the UN the, 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 the uh, UN representative, the South African, how did he interface with, you said a, the, a private private enterprise was leading uh, this process? There, how, did that, how did that go? There was something called the Private Sector Commission, uh-huh. which was created before uh, the Peace and Development Advisor got there because they were so worried that the ethnic violence and governance paralysis would affect the business climate and stop investment. That they took it upon themselves, regardless of their political persuasion, to say, we've got it, and and they have influence, small country, few big businesses. Um, uh, They said, we have to try to impress on government how important it is to uh, end this conflict. Yeah. Um, a great example of, of uh, how peace uh, can be profitable. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know? 
Uh, one last thing that they did was they worked with the University of Guyana. Mm -hmm. And uh, I trained about 50 or 60 Guyanese students who were interested in the subject to work with NGOs and do uh, minimal peace building and bringing communities together mm -hmm. so that NGOs, small businesses and others would start hiring across the ethnic divide as much as possible. Would, the communities actually where people live is very divided, uh, but they back up against each other. Um, so like an Indo... Indo-Guyanese community would have um, neighboring Afro-Guyanese community and again they have common problems let's right. say lack of garbage pickup right so these students would work with communities to try to solve common problems yeah. and in the process bring communities together these are amazing stories gay really they're very concrete they're just so constructive in terms of uh, how this rolled out and what it's what it's been doing I, I think people are just going to be very interested to hear about that and uh, what would you say, because we're, we're, we're pushing against now our, our, our time, and I'm looking mm -hmm. at that, and, but what, what, what's, your, what's your thought of where this program, the PDA program, could be going? Well, I hope it will be a catalyst to really infuse conflict transformation at all levels in the UN, that these people who are working in country offices around the world are able to... Uh, walk their talk, demonstrate by what they do uh, how all kinds of development and humanitarian and other work can be done in the field. Uh, another thing that uh, we worked on was to create trainings like there is an online self-paced conflict sensitivity training for people who work in all disciplines. I'd like to say and tell people it is open to the public for free. And it can be found at the UN Staff College website. Um, so it is open for people? Yes, it is open. For anyone okay. who wants to take it, it's about a four or five hour course. Uh, you can stop and start. And um, it was created by the UN Conflict Sensitivity Task Force. And you can find it at unssc.org. Sorry uh, okay. to give a, a plug. No, no, no. That's great. It. I think people would love to hear uh, that. Yeah. I, Lots of recognition now how all of our work needs to really, the, the, the catchphrase is do no harm. Yeah. But more than make sure not to do harm, do the maximal good. And that sometimes requires a lot of this kind of consultation and yeah. analysis yeah. and checking. So those things are important. Um, uh, mm -hmm. I did want to ask you if, you know, when you reflect back on that whole initiative, um, I was interested in hearing... Um, Kind of, you know, your thoughts now with 2020 hindsight, uh, what you really feel great about and if there's anything you would have done differently as that kind of change agent that actually you, you created a really important change and you and others, I get mm -hmm. it. Um, mm -hmm. But any, any uh, hindsight reflections? Uh <laughs> I'm going to quote another friend of mine who recently told me to get anything done at the UN, you have to build on precedent and nurture fledgling coalitions. And I think I did both of those things. Like when that SG's report came out with that line about how 
countries are responsible for prevention? We said yes. And then we use that as our jumping off point mm -hmm. to tailor how we can build the capacity of mm -hmm of member state governments and their civil societies and these things. Yeah, it gave and, you good cover. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then nurturing coalitions means you really have to get everyone on board because mm -hmm. if they're not inside your tent, they're outside trying to knock it down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I probably could have done that part a little bit better. How so? Uh, took some knocks there. Uh -huh. um, because when you're successful and people see what you're doing and that it's working, some gravitate toward it gladly and others feel you're stepping on their turf and they yeah. get jealous and yeah. they try to take it over or knock it down. Yeah, there's and a lot of, at the end of the day, there's a lot of, of uh, people with, you know, just the human, the human element of absolutely. ego and turf and that yes. kind of stuff that gets in all of our way in different ways, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those are really... Um, interesting reflections and um so uh and anything else anything else about that whole initiative that before we yeah. before well, we one more maybe is um the of course don't be afraid to try and knock and ask but also believe in people see yeah. the best in them and you really get the best i mean yeah. people came through in a lot of ways people had fabulous ideas um and did amazing things yeah 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 yeah. Beautiful. So, and, and now you were, you were starting to talk about GAMAC, which I know yes. the name of it because yep. I have worked with you on some of those projects. Mm -hmm. You tell me, did you want to talk about it briefly or do you want to really get into it? Uh, just briefly. And I, okay. GAMAC stands for Global Action Against Mass Atrocity Crimes. Yeah. Uh, which is a network, a global network, uh, trying to introduce the similar concept about helping states develop their own capacities for ensuring that atrocities like genocide will never happen in their country. And this is not directed toward any particular countries. It's not supposed to stigmatize countries. Countries like Switzerland and Denmark are developing their internal strategies to avoid genocide mm -hmm. and also to help other countries who may wish to learn from their experience. Mm -hmm. But the point I wanted to get to is both in that work that I'm doing now and what I did at the UN, we... Um, use the term infrastructures for peace, which is really my hope of something that will contribute to worldwide peace, which is everything from uh, a national human rights commission in a country to a national mediation center to local peace committees at the grassroots and really ground levels where people will feel heard and like they can have their voices raised and their uh, complaints or problems listened to and resolved in an acceptable way to them. And even in the best case scenario where there may or may not be a functioning court system, it's very difficult and costly for a lot of people to get access to that and feel they have justice. And so if we could create a more mediated society uh, through kind of infusing conflict transformation skills throughout the world, I think we'd have a much better place. That's enough said on that yeah, today. Yeah, very, very cool. You know, when we, I'm an organizational consultant and, and one of the things, of course, is that you, it's really hard to create change inside a system unless you have a really compelling vision of what it is that you're trying to create. And so, of course, the same thing is about this. We're, we're talking about, a, a, you know, the, the largest system, our planetary system. And, 
And um, so uh, I'm asking people about their vision. You know, um, what could it look like in your mind? I, I think we have such a deep dialogue going on um, around conflict and war. Um, it still pervades so much of what gets talked about on the news and every, everywhere else. And, um, and I, I don't know if you were able to listen to, to my particular podcast, but I, I think I do have this concern about people just simply thinking that peace is boring. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I wanted to hear your vision. You know, what, what, what could we create here um, that um, is really is a compelling picture uh, that could take us to a totally different level than we're currently at? Okay. Uh, to answer that, I have to start with the personal. Because uh, a small anecdote all my life I've been very engaged in issues and fighting, fighting, and working, working. And my husband, on the other hand, is very introspective and does a lot of meditation mm. as opposed to mediation. Mm. And he would always say to me, Gay, you have to fix yourself before you can fix the world. Mm. And my answer to that was, if I wait until I'm fixed, I'll be dead. So I have to do both <laughs> simultaneously. Uh -huh. uh, so I do want to stress something about the personal because I have seen a lot of people who call themselves peacemakers who are not peaceful. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to work. Mm -hmm. And so I think people who are looking to enter this field or even people who are in this field need to look deeply in themselves and ask if they are as mindful as they could be and as personally peaceful and if they're doing things in a way that is not attached to their ego and the fruits of their actions. Mm -hmm. And so for that, I would start maybe my definition, and I had this on a magnet on my door for many years, of peace. It does not mean to be in a place where there is no noise, trouble, or hard work. It means to be in the midst of those things and still be calm in your heart. <laughs> so I think we need to start from there mm -hmm. in, in a peaceful way and do our work really as service and being an instrument. Yeah. And then in terms of peace in the world, I don't think it's boring at all. Uh, I think it's totally engaged, sometimes engaged in disagreement, but constructively uh, approached. And another thing that I had on my door is another poem from a man named Brian Wren. I don't know who he is, but I think it, it, this is derived from some biblical quotations. And this always struck me as having the contrast of what peace is and is not. So if I may, I'll, I'll read this one too. Yeah, please. Okay. Say no to peace if what they mean by peace is the quiet misery of hunger, the frozen stillness of fear, the silence of broken spirits, the unborn hopes of the oppressed. Tell them instead that peace is the shouting of children at play, the babble of tongues set free, the thunder of dancing feet, and a parent's voice singing. Say no to peace if what they mean by peace is a rampart of gleaming missiles, the arming of distant wars, money at ease in its castle, and grateful poor at the gate. Tell them instead that peace is the hauling down of flags, the forging of guns into plows, the giving of fields to the landless, and hunger, a fading dream. 
Thank you, Gay. That's beautiful. And um, it's probably a great place to end. And um, and I um, I don't know if, the, you know, uh, I'm going to put on the website how to reach you and uh, so that listeners can be in touch with you if they'd like to be. And I really hope you come back because there's so many other stories that I think you could tell that would be super interesting for people to hear. Um, so anything you want to say by way of parting words or anything that... Just thank you for this opportunity to share and especially even for listening to this last poem because to me that's it. Peace is no hunger, no fear and all of us recognizing that we're all in this together and we have to be if the planet's going to be saved. So thank you so much. Uh, this was really a privilege for me. Thank you. I really, really uh, great having you on the show. And I am going to insist that you come back and do it again. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Okay. So until that time. Okay. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Peace Building Podcast. Check out thepeacebuildingpodcast.com for show notes and for more great information and resources. We like your feedback, comments, and suggestions please email them to Susan Coleman at susan at thepeacebuildingpodcast.com. And come join us again for next week's episode for more great thinking, innovations, and ideas to take our planet to the next level.